This is the seventh Sunday of Easter, the Sunday after Ascension Day. And Ascension Day kind of gets lost in uh, the rush, particularly these days, since it's always on a Thursday, and we never really get to talk a lot about Ascension on the Sunday following. So I want to say some things about Ascension. And then I want to say some things to you about eternal life, about what John means when he uses the term the world, and how you and I are, are called to be in the world but not of the world, and what does all that mean? Because this Sunday, that's the focus, both of the reading from the epistle from 1 John and from the gospel in Jesus' farewell discourse and his high, high priestly prayer. So I want to say some things about that because uh, it's important. There is a lot of oral tradition that exists about the ascension. Certainly the gospel writers uh, received this oral tradition. It was widely uh, known or believed that Jesus had ascended into heaven after he had appeared uh, and risen from the dead. But also it would be something that would be unfortunate if we were to focus ourselves too carefully on the historical nature of the ascension and not what the church wanted to say about that and certainly subsequent uh, commentators on the biblical witness and on what this means. Uh, I'm going to read a quotation to you in a minute from Father Thomas Keating. And you may ask yourself, because this stuff is pretty uh, deep, uh, you know, uh, spiritual theology, where, does they, where do they get this stuff? Well, they get this stuff from the tradition with a capital T. And people like Father Thomas Keating, who have been monks for 50 years, uh, had to read a lot about the early church. So the church of the first 400 years was endlessly going over this and, and thinking about what in the world it means when we read this stuff in the Bible and how do we appropriate it and how do we understand it, you know. So you had two things going on in the early Christian church. Um, not too much assurity about what it is they believed with precision, but a lot of surety about what they did not believe. And so what you have in this particular case is Father Thomas Keating talking about what he may have read even from some of the medieval commentators like Bernard of Clairvaux about the meaning of the ascension. The ascension is not some movement into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, Jesus has penetrated the very depth of our being, our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person, and now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So what that means from a person of prayer is thinking about the ascension not like this, but like this. So the ascension comes before the Feast of Pentecost for the purpose of saying Jesus in his physical presence is not any longer here. He is now in your heart. He is now in the heart of all the faithful people. And he returns on Pentecost as the Spirit of God that dwells in you. 
God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen him. And so the early Christians, particularly the, the later writers in the New Testament, began to see that they were animated or believed that they were animated by the Spirit of God in special ways, not for religious purposes only, but for the purpose of understanding how to be the best human being they could be, or following on the tradition with a capital T and all the writers, we're made in God's image, and so how do we live into that reality as human beings, and what does it mean? So the Ascension, the Feast of the Ascension, had enormous importance for early Christians. And that's why it's celebrated. So I, I don't know whether it's still true, but in the Roman Church in this country, it was a holy day of obligation. So that meant if you were faithful, you better get in there <laughs> on Ascension Day. So it was important. So think about that. Jesus now has transcended time and space. And he's everywhere and in our hearts, too, specifically. Remember Father Keating's uh, thing that I have been using during the great 50 days, and that is that every liturgy that we come to, all the worship of the church, the Eucharist, we always encounter three great theological ideas. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And you can see where this goes because Father Keating then moves from the Ascension to talking about how we are filled now with God's life, God's life, and God's love. God's life being the wisdom that attaches to us meeting the challenges and the opportunities in front of us on a daily basis. Practical wisdom could be understood to mean the accumulated knowledge of our response to adversity and also how well we handle the good things. You know? Sometimes uh, it's a good thing to be able to cope with things moving along smoothly. Some people don't do that as well as others. I've been a pastor for a while and I've had people say things to me like, you know, my life was going so well, things just seem to be firing on all eights. And I finally got to, I said to myself, how can I screw this up? <laughs> right? How can I throw a monkey wrench into this? Because I just, it's too much. Right? So the accumulated wisdom of being able to handle the good things as well as the adversity is part of this. The light of God, God's wisdom, which also dwells in our hearts, our ability to uh, meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. God's life is empowerment. And that means the touching of the Spirit now that dwells in us is the result of the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It is what we believe we receive sacramentally at our baptism. And it is the opportunity then to always know that you can be strengthened by this spiritual force that exists in all human beings. And finally, the love of God is the knowledge that each one of us can be transformed. We can be changed. It is possible to do that. And I'm sure all of you have known people who have said there's no way I'm, you know, and there is a sense, isn't there? Most of us are sort of like we are and we always have been. But we can do some things about some things. 
And the some things we can do something about are things that maybe make us healthier in relationship, make us a little less uh, anxious, make us a little bit more able to cope with things that uh, at one time appeared to be baffling. So the ascension and its feast is a sort of intensification of that knowledge. The same things over and over again. I used to worry a lot about this. My morals and ethics professor in seminary, Robert Cooper, said, you're going to find out you're going to be saying the same thing over and over again. And it's okay, he said. You know? <laughs> and he said, a lot of the things I'm going to tell you all are obvious. But the obvious is not always what we do, right? Or we think up other names to describe what it is we're doing just so we feel a little bit better about whatever it is that we're doing. The writings that are attributed to John, the Gospel according to St. John and uh, the, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are um, some of the latest writing in the New Testament. And why this is important is that it means that we're dealing with a Christian community. It's called, often in biblical scholarship, Raymond Brown, the great Roman Catholic biblical uh, scholar who died about 10 years ago, very, very fine, wrote many, many books and wrote probably one of the definitive commentaries on John's Gospel. Raymond Brown referred to this group as the community of the beloved disciples. Here's what they had to contend with. We're now two generations, maybe three generations out. So what's the good news for us? Three generations out from the historical Christ event, to use the biblical scholarly language. How do we appropriate it and make it part of our own personal history? How does this still live for us? And what are we going to understand uh, about all of this? So what do we mean when we think of the term or have actually come up with it? It may not be eternal life. How do we understand what that might mean? I think most Christians have a kind of a magical view of what that might mean, you know, that we just sort of... One time many years ago, I, I was in a conference with a monk of the Order of the Holy Cross. It's a religious community of men in the Episcopal Church. And I said to the priest that I was talking to, he said to me in the course of the conversation, remember, David, it isn't a question of whether there's life after death. It's where is it going to be spent? <laughs> That's one point of view, right, about what that means. But here's the thing. John's gospel and the epistles uh, are about relationship and about the intensity of the relationship that exists between Jesus and God, the intimacy that was clear from those who heard and saw the earthly Jesus, and the intimacy that was created by Jesus and the community that he called into being. And this intimate relationship was something that the community began to see and believe was something that would transcend physical death, that it would never go away. You know, I know that at least some of you believe this with regard to loved ones that you have known who have died and gone to God. That relationship hasn't gone away. There isn't a day that goes by 
that I don't wish I could tell my mother something. I wish I could. She's been dead for 35 years. And I think about it, you know, not in some maudlin sense or particularly sad, just, you know, but whatever it is she said to me or did for me or any of my parents, uh, it had some effect now because those voices are in my head for good or ill. <laughs> right? So what that means is, is that the appropriation of a concept emotionally and spiritually of the idea of eternal life and relationship that goes beyond the grave is not hard for us as human beings to connect to. I don't think. And the community of the beloved disciple believed that this relationship that they had with Jesus was just like that. And more to the point, the words they heard from him and the deeds that he did, they began to truly believe could be replicated in their own community life. And they believed what it says in John's Gospel, you will do even greater works than these. So Jesus in the Gospel today is talking to them about how to handle their separation anxiety. He's, he's about ready to go. So he's talking about this relationship. And we, over the last several weeks, have heard about coming to believe. We've heard about loving one another. We've heard about the commandment to love one another. We've heard all, about all kinds of relational things that this community came to understand embodied the nature of eternal life. But also, more to the point, the Johannine community understood themselves to be expressing eternal life in the here and now. So you are living in such a way as that you are laboring in the world to make it a place where it's easier for people to be good. So what does John mean when he says the world? been an awful lot of world-denying behavior in Christianity over the centuries, hasn't there? And there have been people who have believed that you had to engage in hair-raising austerities in order to be faithful. I'm kind of a middle-roader on this, you know. I believe that there may be some people who do need to do that for whatever reason. But most of us don't. And most of us are in the world. And John meant this. The word, of course, in the New Testament for world is cosmos, like the te television show. And in the Greek sense of cosmos, it means chaos. Chaos moving to order. For John, see, well, where does he get all this stuff? You know all these commentators I talked to you about a little bit earlier from the first fourth century did a lot of writing on the New Testament. For John, the world is chaos. He's not too interested in the moving to some form of order other than understanding their role in making it so. Because the disordered world that he believes is something that he and his community have begun to understand how to step away from, is it seems to be the sort of default condition of human beings. Most of us bring a lot of stuff in our own direction 
as the result of our uh, thinking and being and relating. So how to uh, create a situation where we transform that in a way and bring it into some sense of order and wholeness. So the community of the beloved disciples said, we believe and see because of the nature of the world we're in, of the, of the reality we experience, a chaotic situation. But we also understand that we can be instruments of order. This, hap this occurs, by the way, in two ways, internally, emotionally, and personally, and externally in terms of the community in which we, in which we live. So they understood that the world was something we're in. In fact, Jesus says, I'm, they're in the world, I've put them in there. They've got to be in the world, but you and I must always stand at a critical distance from uh, the uh, conventional wisdom of how we ought to operate in the world. And there are a whole lot of unexamined assumptions that we have about a whole lot of things that we never even think about. You don't have to sound like some sawdust-kicking fundamentalist preacher to say that there's some a lot of stuff that's completely out of whack, and some of it we just accept as a matter of course, you know? And so learning to develop, I suspect, your critical powers uh, would be something that would be important. The world is something we stand at a critical distance from. Now, that means that it says something also to us about our vocation as Christian people. And our vocation as Christian people is not principally, in my opinion, to bank more ho souls home to God, like a lot of brands of Christianity that believe that's the sole reason that you should exist. I just read the other day, no, I, I haven't finished it yet. But there is an article in the brand new Harper's Magazine about the military and Christianity. You need to read this thing. It'll make your hair stand on end. You know? There's a lot of Christianity out there that says the first obligation that you and I have is to, is to bring people to accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Everything else is subordinate to that. You need to be convicted of your sin and understand your need for a savior and then we move forward from there. The idea that you and I could be living in a chaotic world is irrelevant. As a Christian pastor, I gotta tell you, I've ha I have had to deal with people who have been given real worries in their life over that kind of stuff. It has been one of the most pernicious influences on people's lives. And it is, it is given most people these days uh, the good excuse to say, count me out. Count me out. You know? I mentioned to you a little bit ago that maybe some people need to engage in... Uh, become part of religious communities that are engaged in, in uh, hair-raising austerities and uh, pra pious practices of one kind or another. And maybe there's some people who need to really take, you know, believe that they're miserable sinners and then they'll go, it'll be up from there. 
I did say two or three weeks ago, sometimes I think in this culture, uh, there are a lot of us who could do with a good do dose of low self-esteem. <laughs> right? It couldn't, it couldn't hurt and it might help. What does it mean? It means being humble in the best possible way. Again, all these people I talk about. What is humility? Humility is not groveling. Humility is not uh, self-effacing behavior. Humility is not some sort of a shy timidness about regard, with regard to yourself. Humility is knowing yourself. And all the great theologians, even in the high Middle Ages, said it is understanding how, how high you can reach. It is understanding yourself in two ways. Being honest about your shortcomings and not being bashful about saying what it is that commends you in your life and how you influence other people. What are the things that you bring to the table? Every one of you has things you bring to the table in big and small ways that makes the world a better place because of you and makes it possible that we can move from that chaotic situation to one that becomes a little bit more orderly. So being in the world has something to do with uh, some uh, honesty and truthfulness about yourself. So I guess this week, uh, think about how you're being in the world. And uh, look at who you are and what you can do in such a way as um, you have some influence on things in big and small ways. I've said this to you many times before. The priest I began my ministry with said, we Episcopalians are inchers. We make progress by inches. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, someone told me that in the eastern part of this country in the, in, in the uh, recovery movement, one of the things they say at the end of a 12-step meeting is, may your recovery be slow. So pray for a slow recovery. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Cafe. Interesting about chaos and order because the heavenly host, my musical, began with the middle part and the struggle between good and evil turned out no between chaos and order. Yes. Yeah. That's where it is. Good. Good job. Thank you. You know what? I ha I just I haven't